Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 185. I'm your host, ID34. I just from Thursday night's panels are Larry Davis, Carl Berry, Buddy Thornton, Terry Green, and Dr. William D. Daniels. Buddy Thornton, please say hello to the people. Good evening, everybody, and I uh, cannot remember the last time I was in the same room with such esteemed colleagues. I am so excited tonight. <laughs> As we are, too. Carberry, please say hello again to the people, sir. Hello, everyone. This is Carl Berry, and I, like Buddy, I appreciate being with such esteemed listeners as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And the one and only Dr. Larry Davis, please say hello again to the people, sir. Hello, and I'm just like Buddy and uh, Carl. Listen here, I know there's been tons of drop the mic moments, so Isaiah, just pick the mic back up so we can keep going. <laughs> Don't drop the mic. Listen, Jerry Green, please say hello to the people. Good evening, it's Jerry Green from Oklahoma City. Glad to be on the panel with some great individuals. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. And Dr. William D. Daniels, please say hello again to the people. Hello, everyone. I am also honored to be on tonight's program with uh, our wonderful guests as well. Well, tonight's topic is one you, oh, wow, you may want to write this one down. But the topic tonight is eradicate de facto segregation. Eradicate de facto segregation. When you hear the title, three words come to my mind. We want to talk about it. One is reality. Two is awareness. Three is experience. When you got the topic for the night, Buddy Thornton, what was the first thoughts that came to your mind? You know, uh, the first thing I thought about was how back in uh, 1954, we thought we got rid of separate but equal. And now we're facing equal but separate. And I think that is entirely a description for tonight's talk. Oh, that's good. That's good. Let's see here. Jerry Green, what was your thoughts when you heard the topic for the night? People are attracted to who they like, they know, and they trust. Rich. That's so reflective. That's so reflective. Carl Berry, what were the thoughts that came to your mind when you got this topic for the night? Frankly, the first thing I thought about was synonyms. Uh, because the definition of de facto segregation, it depends on the decade of which you're looking at it, because it goes by many other names. And so I'm interested in the perspective of this esteemed uh, collection of speakers. Oh, that's good. That's good. Larry Davis, what were your thoughts? We got the top for tonight. I'm with Buddy, you know, that we look at that word discrimination and we, and just like everyone else is saying, is it, is it a description? Is it a choice? Or is it a synonym? We never really know what it is, but I will say this, discrimination exists, but does it exist? The greatest trick the devil ever did was make people believe he didn't exist. Ooh. This is going to be, mm, I can't even use the word. Dr. William Daniels, De- what was your thoughts? We well, you got to stop for a night, please, sir. 
Well, you know, it makes me think about equity. You know, equity in education is a huge, huge, huge issue. And when you throw in segregation, you know, one just has to ask oneself, how do we maintain equity? Um, I mean, a whole lot could be said about that, but I'll stop right there. That's so good. Will families once again be challenged by school access to public education? That's a question that we must unfortunately think about right now. Separation but equality could be a problem that families face in the future. This inequality is known as de facto segregation because it limits access to resources due to housing patterns, economic statuses, and other discriminatory circumstances like race and nationality. People like U.S. District Judge William Wang Justice in 1971, he fought against this brilliant man, this beautiful person. He fought against these unconstitutional acts of inequality with cases like United States versus Texas. And he helped to pass the civil order of 5281 which required the integration of busing routes, the extracurricular activities of all school facilities, no matter what race, religion, creed, color. And he affected the way that the policymakers made their decisions as it related to student enrollment based on race and color, based on national origin. And so tonight, we're going to talk about, we're going to break down, we're going to set a smorgasbord before you and break down this de facto segregation and how it's affecting us in the United States today. Now, the court ruling, the Supreme Court ruling a few weeks ago, well, about two weeks ago, ruled that affirmative action was un constitutional what's your thoughts the panel is open who wants to go first you know I'm gonna go with my three synonyms my, my three synonyms is I can go back with buddy to the 1960s and I can talk about systematic racism institutionalized racism or I can talk about what's been erased in the last 10 years the critical race theory. All of this has been reconfirmed in just a different way. And hopefully, I think the powers that be want us to get caught up in the uh, words and and not in the definitions of the words. Oh, that's good. That's good. Who's next? Dr. Larry Davis, what's, what's your thoughts? Well, again, like I said, the biggest the biggest thing we have to look at is sometimes when a car displays so much, the car, the car itself loses its value, right? So when you look at how the word and how the case of discrimination has started to be viewed and used in modern society, some something that we're doing is diminishing the value, the credibility of that word. Right. So does discrimination exist? Yes. But when you have so many suits filed because of discrimination, they have nothing to do with it. 
we convolute the water with how to fix it. Ooh, that's, you know, we talked about reality. We talked about awareness. That was so tied to that. Who's next? Let's go with, let's go with Jerry Green. What's your thoughts, sir? I, I think I can agree with uh, Dr. Davis when, it, when you start talking about being diluted. But the other side of it is, is it being diluted or is it affecting more people individually so they want to get uh, a resolution to their situation? Because the work we do uh, in the lane of black student advocacy, our phone's just ringing more and more and more. So it's not that uh, discrimination and things like that are happening less. It's just more people are being affected by it. And I think more people now are willing to reach out and try to get a resolution. Oh, this is going to be good tonight. I want to say so much, but I got to be quiet. I'm serving right now. I'm serving. I'm serving. Buddy Thornton, Postal Change Agent Pro, I'm so glad you're here tonight. What's your thoughts? Well, it's a well-known statement that has been said over and over again throughout history. When we have a problem with one, it becomes a sensational idea. But when we have a problem with millions, it becomes a statistic. And the first thing that happens when we deal with something as a statistic is anybody who doesn't love numbers, their eyes just glaze over and they go, oh, I'm not going to even pay attention. And I think that's exactly where Dr. Davis and Mr. Green and everybody else has gone with this. The problem has been so pervasive that now it's like having to throw a dirty fork in the sink. It's automatic. It's what you're going to do. We're just going to keep on with the conversation. And there has been no equitable solution that can satisfy all parties. And so over time, it gets so diluted and so wearisome that people just say, you know what, let's just kind of step around it. Let's treat it like it's not there and let's go to something else. Ooh, listen, listen. Come on, come on, Dr. Daniels. Because <laughs> I, I got some questions. Well, come on. well, you know, the funny thing is, I think about, you know, my days, uh, you know, as a young engineering student many, many years, you know, decades ago. And I asked myself, you know, uh, you know, what I've gotten accepted into the University of Michigan if it wasn't for affirmative action. And that reality is no, I probably would not have because I'm not, I don't come from the typical, um, you know, breed of families that, you know, you would see uh, who have had decades of, you know, relatives go through the University of Michigan. But does that mean that I'm not able to get there? You know, some of us, you know, in my mind, some of us just need a little bit just to be able to qualify to, you know, attend schools like that. And, and you know, for me, it's a great thing. Now, does it work for everybody? It probably doesn't. But does that mean it needs to be, you know, very nice needs to be eradicated? You know, for me personally, I, I say no. But right now, I think what needs to happen is, you know, the, the collective intelligence of this country needs to figure out now, well, what do we do now for those people who, uh, you know, otherwise wouldn't qualify to go to those schools or may not qualify to go to those schools, but they probably could survive and do well and benefit. Okay, it's time to get dirty. It's time to get ugly. Here we go. So, all the comments were brilliant. They really were. 
But let's go further. Let's we about to stretch. I feel like we about to stretch. I dare say that. And I say it in all due respect with the panelists that we have on the night. The panelists that we have on the night come from different different uh, areas uh, of life. They are they are seasoned. They've been proven. I'm gonna be honest with you. Millions millions did not make it where they are today. But there are very few. There are some of the ones that did. With that being said, one of my childhood heroes who I, I listen to, and this person me so much oh my god if it wasn't I'm gonna I'm be real I'm gonna be candid with you if it wasn't for this person I, I don't think I would have been able to break down complex subjects and objects in a way that was bite-sized enough for me to chew but they called this this American icon they called him a racist they called him a racist because the way he taught Offended so many ethnicities And I'm talking about Dr. Seuss I'm talking about Dr. Seuss Dr. Seuss taught me so much wisdom As it relates to life But now they're trying to ban his books Because they are seeing this overtone That's offensive to so many other races like Asian, like African American. And so it's these discriminatory images that they are abrasive to modern people. Yet we learned, I learned so, so much about him. And I didn't really look at the imagery of what he was doing. I was looking at the spirit behind the word. Anyway, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how in America we were taught back in the day, we're talking like 20 years ago, how the education system was and how it did something right because we learned in a way that we were motivated intrinsically to be successful. What's going on with the education system now that our young people are not intrinsically motivated like they were in the past? The panel's open. Who wants to take that? I want to go back to where I first heard the word uh, de facto segregation because that goes all the way back to 1960. And when we look at that, we look at things like implicit and explicit bias. And so we still got to look at and reevaluate, are we dealing with something new or are we talking about just the, the words themselves? And I'm going to, we got a lot of intelligent people here, so I wonder if I'm the only one thinking that way. That's good. Who's next? Who's next? You know, I, I would say as an educator, you know, that's a, that's like the golden question. How do we uh, develop intrinsic motivation around education, especially for young black and brown students? And, you know, I can tell you from having worked in inner city schools that it's, it's very difficult um, you know, one of the things that you really have to do at very young ages 
you know, um, you have to provide them with opportunities to see the benefits of what their education is going to do and, you know, continue to motivate and nurture that feeling, uh, those intrinsic motivators so that they can, you know, grow and develop into, uh, you know, match on to their education. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, around, I think, fourth or fifth grade, uh, maybe a little higher than that. Between fourth and like sixth grade, if, if young black and brown students, especially males, don't match on to their education intrinsically, valuing it, then they probably will struggle and may not even graduate. So, you know, the question is, what do you do? And I've, I've seen time and time again when we make the mistake where we put all of this education in front of kids, we test them, and we know exactly where they are, but we don't show them, well, here's why you're going to school, and here's what you can be. And here's a plan for you that can get you there all the way up through high school. I, I, I don't see that. And so I think that's something that has to happen in order to develop that intrinsic motivation you spoke about. Oh, that was good. That was good. Who, who's next? Who's next? This is this Jerry. I'll go next. I'm going to go back for a second and then uh, come and follow up. I think that was uh, Dr. Daniels who just spoke. Yeah. Okay. So the question is, is Dr. Seuss was offensive? Uh, then he was education, now he's offensive. But the other side of it is, would they still show Fat Albert today on TV? Because if you look back and think of Fat Albert now, then to now, to the black community, a lot of characters in there are offensive. But because we don't control what comes out of the media, we probably would still see that okay to be shown on TV to give a bad reputation to black folks. And uh, Dr. Daniels, I grew up in Ypsilanti, Michigan, so I know exactly what you talk about the U, University of Michigan. Um, then you got to look at, I, I think that we need to do at a very early age for students this career day. So by doing that, you can say, hey, because I'm a doctor, I needed this, this, this. Because I'm an electrician, I needed this, this, this. And then kids can know based on how they interpret or what they like, if they like work with your hands or what have you, what track could go for them. Because we know this track, when you start seeing tenants in classrooms of Harvard, UCLA, Michigan, Michigan State, and all the other schools in second grade, that's setting the many students up to fail because they're not latching on to see the relevance of the classroom work to what they really want to do every day in their life. And I'll stop there. Oh, that was good. That was good. Who's next? I'll give it a shot. Let me, let me say this right here. When we talk about intrins intrinsic, we need to think about legacy. Sometimes the things that connect us, that motivate us, are our legacies. And if you go back, and he gave the example of Fat Albert, and, and you talked about Dr. Seuss. Think about this. Before, if we never had Sanford and Son, that was the first time they was a black business owner on television, though he was struggling, 
we never would have had the Jefferson. If we never had the Jeffersons who was moving on up, we never would have had the Fresh Prince living in Bel Air. So we got to put these images in front of our children, and that's how we build that legacy, and that's how we build that intrinsic motivation. You know that. Was, you know that was beautiful. You know that was beautiful. You know that was. Be- uh, who's next? Who's next? Well, uh, we're talking about human behavior, and obviously, I think everybody on this panel knows that intrinsic motivation is always a lot more powerful than any extrinsic motivators. So when we're looking at people who are feeling like they're being uh, dragged away from things that they might have an interest in, or if we're censoring things because of people's feelings or their, we might, we might just really irritate somebody the wrong way. What we're doing is we're losing the ability to have a conversation about why that might be something that is repulsive. How can we ever show these children something that, is has bad from the past if we're not allowed to show them anything that's bad from the past well let me talk to you about heckle and jekyll but i can't oh i'm sorry i can't show you an example there are no examples because we're not allowed to do that there's a lot of things about the past that were acceptable like you know uh people getting on stage doing menstrual shows you're not going to find a menstrual show anywhere in the world now it's not allowed so we can't have the conversation about why it's not allowed. So we lose the ability to give them any kind of knowledge so they can build some type of intrinsic motivation to understand good behavior. And I'll leave it right there. Oh, hey, Isaiah, let me say on. this. This is, Talk about this, is, this, is, this is interesting. In second grade, when I was in second grade, we went on a field trip to see the movie Song of the South. I don't know who remembers that movie, but that movie was about a rabbit and Uncle Remus and the word Piccaninny was all throughout that movie. You cannot find that movie on Disney's anything anymore because it was so racial, but they took a group of black students to see this movie when I was in second grade. And like Buddy said, it's not allowed anymore. Uh, Fat Albert's not allowed anymore. But you know what? Sometimes growth, just like in the Bible, they said, let the wheat, let the wheat grow so you can separate the weed from the weed. So we had to grow to separate the weed from the weeds, and that's where we are right now. Oh, that that was a nuclear bomb you just dropped. <laughs> that was a nuclear bomb. Okay, let me recap. Let me recap because we, we got to get into this thing, y'all. We ain't even started with the questions yet, but so we talked about. I feel like we talked about self awareness. I feel like we talked about educating ourselves and educating yourself. And to do that, you got to be engaged. That's how you see it. That's how you do it, through engagement. We definitely talked about stereotyping. But I want to pose a question before we go to to each panelist. I want to pose a question about appreciating people's differences. And I'm talking about respecting. Almost like a, a social contract. Just like the... I guess the social contract theory, which is basically respecting cultural diversity. How are we respecting cultural diversity these days, especially when we got social media showing in and everything to our young people? I'm talking about TikTok. I'm talking about these different social media platforms where I would say the young people are exploiting themselves 
in a way that's not healthy for society. The panel is open still. We're going to close in a little bit, but what's your thoughts? Who wants to go first? I mean, just think about that. That's well, what I'm asking. You know, I think well, someone, this is Dr. Dane, I heard someone say, allude to us having, you know, a dialogue. I really feel like that just, we just lost the opportunity or that we lost the, the momentum in having more dialogues about uh, value and cultural diversity. I mean, you know, I've, I've worked at schools before where we talk about it and they've been mostly, you know, unicultural, mostly African-American. But what are we doing to cross those lines, you know, go across the block to that other school that's, you know, predominantly Latinx um, or predominantly white or predominantly, you know, Asian. What are we doing to bring those people together to really, you know, talk about what we value as a culture? You know, I, one of the reasons why I went to a predominantly white institution when I was younger wasn't because I didn't like HBCUs. I saw the value of HBCUs all the way. But I said to myself, if, if I'm going to... Uh, ultimately move into the workforce. I got to understand how other people think. I got to understand, you know, what's important to them because I might be on a team with people who don't look like me. And so how do I have a conversation with people that don't look like with me when I'm turning my nose up at them because I don't want their food or I don't like their clothes or whatever. And, I, and I'm happy that I went to a predominantly white institution because it helped me to see other cultures and helped me to value those other cultures. Uh, I just feel like in this country, we just really don't, uh, we, we don't push each other to really have conversations and to really see, you know, uh, the experiences of other cultures. Hey, you got it. I want to, I want to, yeah, yeah, I want to add something to that. I wrote, uh, and I've uh, re-sent, republished them three times. But I wrote a series uh, that was celebrated very well in uh, 2018, 19, and 20, and then COVID kind of swallowed it up. But it, it goes through the stair step of assimilation and then acculturation and then social amalgamation. And the people who were responding to me are sending me information and the people who were thanking me for writing those articles were predominantly minorities, especially academics because I was able to define why assimilation is stupid and why acculturation falls far short of what we need in this country where social amalgamation, where we take the best of everybody and shed what doesn't work as a collective, which means we have to honor uh, the value of every person in the room, no matter what their diverse uh, makeup is. So if you, like Dr. Daniel said, if you're at a predominantly white institution and that's the environment you're in, as long as they are honoring you for what you bring to the table, you fit the descriptive of social amalgamation. They're allowing you to amalgamate without having to force you to assimilate or acculturate because assimilation and acculturation is an insult to a minority. And that's my, and I'm an almost 70 year old white man. And I'm saying I've been speaking that for 20 some years and we need to do that across the board. We need to teach everybody that type of a concept. And we appreciate you for that too. We really do. And we respect that. Uh, who's next? L Dr. Larry days. I want to hear what you got to say about this. Cause I, I, I can feel you, man. <laughs> Go ahead. I think buddy said it, said it best, but someone said earlier, uh, forgot who it was that, 
every time the subject comes up, we change the synonym. And when we change the synonym, we change the narrative. And when you change the narrative, you change everyone's perspective who's not willing enough to be, you know, think about it. They're not equipped to be informed enough to know and make a decision. So they rely on everything that they hear and none of which they research. So those synonyms, I think, are what what keeps raising this ugly head here. We change the synonym, we change the narrative. We change the narrative, we lose people. We lose steam, we lose progress. We start all over again. I think we have to look at the real big picture. And when I say that, we got to look at what social media is. It's media. And so when you start looking at from the business aspect, then you'll see that they're going to give money, companies, corporate America give money to influencers and they cut the pie up versus giving it to black media, but they don't do that for white companies. And also you look at, you'll look at now, we can all look back at what we saw Tim with Bo Derrick and when she first had the brain, it was like, oh my God, it is something new. But black women have been doing that for so long. Then the same thing with the Kardashians, where they went to the store and got what sisters already had and now been able to monetize it. And still sisters catching hell in the workplace and on university for being who they are. So it's one of those things to where you love uh, you love the culture of, uh, or a similar or appropriate black culture, but you don't like the black people. And it's a real hard line because you have people, again, we just being who we are, and we are the salt who drives this world. The black Americans drive the hip-hop and everything else in this country, which then influences what happens around the world but we're not being monetized for that or being paid for that. So it's one of those things to where people, again, have the opportunity to just cherry pick what they want and then turn their back on other situations. Because then you've got to ask yourself this question too. How many non-black folks are making major money off the black community or hip-hop but never stand up and stand in a gap when it's time for black issues or say anything. And I'll, I'll lay my plan on that. I just want to make a comment about the monetary thing, right? You think about this. We're 12.6 to 13% of the United States population, yet we spend one-third of the money spent in this country. So sometimes people say, it's about money, it's about money. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's not about money, but it's about purposeful money. Where is our money spent? Where is our money going? The money in the black community is not going to where it's going to impact decision makers. So we need to take that one third of that money that we're spending and make sure it goes to where it impacts culture, where it impacts political parties, where it impacts political decisions. Then we're going to see a change. But as long as that money is going to things that are highly perishable, we're not going to see anything that's going to nurture change. So prior to me doing the work as a black student advocate, I published and produced Black Business Expos in Southern California. So what Dr. Daniels was talking about, about the spending power, that was my lane. And let me say, now say something about the black student advocate. 
we help anyone who calls us, who call us, okay? But I would have other individuals call and say, you say the black student advocate, but do you help Hispanic? Do you help white? But as black folks, we just go and get the services we need. We don't ask, do you help black folks? Right now, Mr. Carberry, what's your thoughts about what has been said so far? To be real honest, I think we need to also pay attention to what's going on inside of our youth. Uh, internal inferiority. Internal or external superiority. I think we've got to understand that culture is much more than dialect or skin color or uh, language. I go to a multicultural church and there's a guy from South Africa, there's a guy from Trinidad, and I come from the inner city of Kansas City. And some people want to tell us we're all black. But the, the, we're not all black, and the South African has been uh, very much acculturated, and I'm a child of Malcolm X, and I had to get over going to church with these white devils because I didn't know the difference because... Deep down inside, I grew up with inferiority. Deep down inside, I came up in the 60s. I was an adolescent in the 60s, and I came up believing that the, uh, the lighter you were, the smarter you were. The darker you were, the worse you were. And then I suffered multiple, multiple discrimination because I'm a highly light-complected black guy. So I got beat up by the black kids, the Mexicans, and the white boys. And so what we have happened and what has happened inside our kids is also something we need to look at. Because some of you guys have talked about what we need to do with our kids, what we need to reverse when they took them and showed them the movie about the pickaninnies and what they need to uh, get away from the semantics and start getting to the reality of what acculturation really has done and is still doing to us. Oh, this is fire. Listen, another six uh, court case. Yeah, Go I'm going to add one thing Go if ahead. you can. Go ahead. Okay. When, you, when you're doing quality research and you want to validate that research, you have to do the research on a specific population. So when you're like trying to figure out human behavior, the, the, the most favorite combination is identical twins and then you study both of them and you get uh comparables well let's compare what we're talking about to a distinct situation that was not in america but it was in australia when the whites who were obviously colonial driven and the aborigines who were the indigent possible the indigenous population and the whites always said there is absolutely no way any of the aboriginals can function in a white society. Now, let's fast forward to the first generation of aboriginals who were allowed to go to a regular school and participate as part of the general population. And in that very first generation, you had doctors, you had attorneys, you had every type of professional person coming out of that aboriginal group 
there is absolutely no distinct difference between anybody just because of the color of their skin or their origin story or their backstory. If you put somebody in an environment where they can learn, the cream will always rise to the top no matter who it is. And if you go and you look at very distinct populations, it always proves out that way. All right. We can heard. I speak? Can I speak? Absolutely. This is Jerry. And because the work we do, I agree wholeheartedly with what Mr. Thornton said. And also, I believe that's why our students are bullied and dealing with all these situations within the school because they can't concentrate on education. And I call employees of school district landmine. So our students have to go to school because a third of calls we get are from bullying from staff. They have to navigate the landmine and then get an education. Whereas other students don't have to do that. They can just go and be in a safe environment that's conducive to getting their education. So I agree wholeheartedly with uh, what Mr. Thornton just said. Ooh, we, we're talking about due process here. Talking about due process here. Another essential court case was Milliken versus Bradley in 1974, which makes it clear that the federal courts would not use the 14th Amendment to eradicate de facto segregation in the North and West. Now, the power comes from knowing which discriminatory acts are demonstrated. What is displayed and that's the evidence Dr. Larry Davis I'm coming down your lane how do you how do you determine how do you know how do discriminatory acts affect how are you aware based off your experience based off of your reality how are you aware about the discriminatory acts that are affecting teacher turnover rates, not just in this state of Texas, but throughout the nation? That's my question. What's your thoughts? And that goes, think about that. That goes back to what we, what we just talked about, hiring practices of the past, right? We're destined to repeat those same mistakes in the future that we made in the past. And I have a lot of, a lot of love this time because I was the first black high school teacher in a school district here in Texas in 2005. Listen to what that is. I was the very first black high school teacher in a school district here in Texas in 2005. In 2007, I became the very first black administrator. And I had parents getting together with some faculty members on my staff and they would call to the superintendent and make up things like, Mr. Davis is having our children do African dance. So even when we break through that wall, right? You know, here, and I want, I want to make sure we understand this right here. While blacks are still trying to break through this glass ceiling, America has given whites a glass floor. They're only going to let us climb so high, but they're only going to let them fall so low. So even when they violate all these legislative policies, there's no, there's no punitive action against them because the system is built to protect. So when, how does it impact our teachers? Well, first of all, <laughs> think about this. If we say there's a problem, 
a politician can come on and say that's fake news. And listen, a large faction of people who voted for in one election admitted they didn't read the paper. They didn't look at fact finders. They just took the candidate's word of mouth and go. Whatever that candidate said, they believed it. In fact, that candidate was so popular, he coined the phrase fake news. So anytime we have something that we think is a good movement, we can have a politician with, who garnishes a lot of pop popularity come on and say it's fake news. Carter G. Woodson, the, the father, the orchestrator of Black History Month, he wrote the, the Miseducation of the African American Negro, right? And he said this in 1939, whenever there is a plight that affects the black community, the white community can always find a few blacks who will come out and say that's not true and change the narrative of that thing. This war with teachers, with discrimination, period, cannot be fought on social media. It cannot be fought on public television. It has to be fought in the courtroom and on Capitol Hill. We have to stop talking about it and be about it. I think everybody on this call here had that time in their life when they said, okay, if you want to fight, knock this chip off my shoulder. Come across this line, and that's going to determine we're going to get busy. We're going to stop talking about it, and here are the things that we need to do. And here's an interesting thing. We always say we don't want to look at discrimination, but everyone on this call has had this said to them. Oh, thank you for interviewing, but we found a better fit. Is that not discrimination? We found a better fit. Someone asked a question earlier. What's the difference between discrimination and preference? You always can hide behind another synonym, and then you change the narrative. And I say, I'll, I'll leave you with this one here. This is the one that gets me the most. Nonfiction has to make sense. The truth has to make sense. It has to follow an order, and it has to make perfectly good sense, right? I mean, I'm sorry, nonfiction does not have to make sense. It can, you, it can follow any direction it wants because it's the truth. The truth doesn't have to make sense. It's the reality. But fiction has to make sense. So when someone orchestrates a lie, creates a character of what, our, what black kids strive to be in, in social media and videos, you know, they look at, you know, they look at this video and they say, this is what the black child lives. This is what the black child should do. I remember 30 years ago, they said, the football, the basketball is the only way a black child can get out the ghetto. That's a lie. What about his brain? But that became the truth because the media spun it in such a way that that fiction became a reality, even though it's not the truth. So discrimination with teachers, again, we looked at a legacy of history, historical hiring, historical districts. Look at uh, Vider here in Texas. They still don't have black people in Vider, Texas. And they made them take the sign down, what, 10 years ago? Blacks be gone before dark. So we have a long way to go when we're just talking about getting them in our classroom. We can't even get them in our cities. Can I say one thing? Listen, the topic tonight is eradicate de facto segregation. Yes, you can say one thing, and then we're going to go to Jerry Green. I got a question for him. I, I, yeah, I feel it better I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and I listen, and I don't disagree with what was said, but you know me, Isaiah, and you know I'm a maybe guy, and I want to go back to Stalin, and I want you to think about what he represented. And Stalin knew way back then, whoever controls the media controls the mind. I'm through. Listen, Jerry Green, based off what you heard, why in the world does limited access affect 
watch this here because I know you're an advocate for students. Not just black and brown, but all students. Why does limited access affect student rights? That's my question for you. Talk about it. Because then they're only going to get what they receive. And when I say that, they're going to then settle. And when I say that also, I think about um, a lot of times the students that parents call me who are being bullied. I remember back in our day, you just bust a bully upside the head with a rock, a brick, or whatever, and it stops. But we're not preparing our students to go into battle because they're going into a war zone when they go into school. And let me say this, too. Um, what Dr. Daniels is talking about is my PSA number six, which is the education yellow line. Because him really wanting to do the work, then the teachers start rallying to give him a vote of no confidence to the superintendent to have him removed. So it's a, it's a very fine line when a administrator gets to a school site and want to make changes because they see the inequities that's going on. And if they push too hard, the tenured teachers will rally and to get that principal out of their job. So it's about the student having access to see more, to believe they could do more and be more. Meaning that many times because of sports, and that's what uh, our black students been sold. So now look at what's going on in our community. You have year-round basketball. You damn near have year-round football. When they should be seasonal sports to do other things, not just football and basketball. But that's the bill of goods, like Dr. Daniels was, was saying, that we were told that's all the way black students can get out of the neighborhood or can advance. But they got a better chance of becoming a doctor, lawyer, or any other professional than they do of making the NBA, in the NFL. I'll land my plane on that. Oh, you know that was good. You know that was good. I want to talk about test scores. I want to talk about data. I want to talk about analyzing the data. I want to talk about collecting data first, analyzing it second. But Thornton, I got to come down your lane. Why are test scores so important? Especially for this discussion that we have tonight. What in the world does test scores have to do with it? That's my question for you. Well, you know, as a researcher, the first thing you have to look at is what is the general direction that the indicators are pushing us toward? And so when you see test scores in a district or in a specific campus sliding downhill and you can align it directly with the money that's being pulled out of that school and given to private schools or to charter schools or to other schools and moving kids away from that school and the test scores in the other schools where the teachers are gravitating toward where there's more money and more opportunity, then there is no way you can say that the test scores are not correlating to where the money is going. And that has been shown over and over and over again. And the problem is one group of people in our country wants to say, 
well, I want to send my kids to the better school, but what they're doing is they're perpetuating the better school and they're uplifting the better school at the cost of all the other schools. They're basically creating that equal but separate situation. Everyone has equal opportunity, but absolutely nobody's going to have uh, an equal uh, environment. And because you're removing the environment, and the environment is probably the number one factor, it's uh, almost impossible to have good test scores in a school where you are losing student population. There's no, the, the kids are seeing the empty desks around them. They're seeing the teachers leaving and they're starting to say, again, intrinsic motivation. Go right back to that. Why am I still here when everybody else is deserting me? I hear that from kids. I hear that from the parents of kids. I hear that from the teachers who are teaching in the, one of the poorest school systems uh, in districts in Phoenix is, you know, at some point we're going to be below the demarcation line where we can even keep the doors open because there won't be enough teachers and staff to support how few students are here because the dollar value in the district is going to be too low to keep the lights on. So you have to take a look at the test scores. You have to understand that the test scores are a direct indication of what adults who are millions of miles away in thought and thousands of miles away in reality and have absolutely no clue what's happening in that school are making decisions that, well, we're still making it equal for everybody. You know, if we set up one regimen, every congressman, every state legislator has to have their kids in a school, in a public school, dealing with the situation instead of being taken off to some private school or wherever they send them, you would see a huge shift in thinking. They go, oh, if my kid has to be in that environment. I need to protect that environment. But thinking would flip automatically. Carl is right. Carl Berry's right. It's money. It's always been about the money. It's never not going to be about the money. Dr. Larry is right. It's always about how much can we pile on top of the distressed and the, you know, the completely destroyed communities that we are perpetrating that destruction. There is no, this is never not going to stop until somebody stands up and says, you have to live within the framework of the rules, sir, or you do not get to make the rules. That's what has to happen. And I love Jerry Green's thing. I think I'm going to land my bus on his on his uh, airport lane. What you said tonight was so apropos and so aligned to the discussion topic about eradicating de facto segregation. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. And I really want to get ugly with this. <laughs> Separate Ugh, segregation. Segregation is so blatant, especially now, because you see it with disabilities. You see it, you see it with student disabilities. You see it when they force students with disabilities to go to a school only for students with those disabilities. And it happens all the time. We see it. We see it every day and then we are we are hard tasked we are hard pressed to educate these students put them in small groups do whatever it takes to get them to to the place where they are seen as successful 
and then they they evaluate us on how we teach based off of this and to really do this thing right I'm out to go, I, I gotta go to experience I gotta go to a, a mindset that is aware and let me go to and I know the panel has plenty of people like that but for this particular question I'm about to ask I need to go to Dr. William D. Daniels Dr. Daniels why does inequity affect instruction why does it affect growth mindsets why does it affect those standards those in Texas we call them teaks um, those essentials for knowledge that students are expected to obtain and, and why does it affect personal development that's my question for you what's your thoughts well that was that was a loaded question but uh, I'll do my best thank you <laughs> so I, I say loaded with all due respect I mean there's a lot of different angles you can come to when you talk about equity um, you know equity is you know are we taking in consideration that you know you know, some kids come to school and they probably didn't sleep very well. Are we looking at, you know, our kids, you know, eat a good meal before they come to school? Um, are we looking at, um, you know, whether or not, are we taking into consideration that some kids, you know, have a lot of, you know, family issues that may, you know, come into the school building with them? And how does that, you know, affect their ability to learn? You know, we make the mistake, and I say the collective we, right? Because, there was a time when I really didn't understand when I was a first year, you know, educator. We make the mistake of thinking that everybody comes to school ready, prepared to learn, and wants to learn. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And so, you know, what equity tries to do is to, you know, make everybody understand, or help everyone to understand that, you know, not everybody is coming from the same perspective. You know, we come, when they come, when it comes to how they go about learning, we talked about a little earlier about, um, you know, something similar. And it's like, if you want to, to, to value, if you want to put people, children in a position to be able to be successful, you know, we have to understand where they're coming from. And sometimes that can be as simple as just asking them, you know, well, are you okay? Is there anything that I can do to help you? Uh, but, you know, without equity, you know, you can't, I hate to say level the playing field because some people say that, but without having equity, real equity in our school system, you can't say that, you know, a person in school district A is going to, has got the same opportunities and therefore should be the same as person B, even in the same school district, even in the same school, because you just don't know all the factors that make up their culture and make up, you know, who they are and their ability to be able to pursue, you know, their education. I mean, it's just a lot more complicated than that to me and a lot more I could say, rather, but I mean, that's, that's fundamentally what I think about when I think about, you know, how equity plays a role in education. I, I usually... I usually go last or close to last, and I think that either Dr. Daniels or Dr. Davis needs to go last, uh, I, only because what they said tonight was heartfelt, soulfelt. They brought out everything they needed to bring out to the table. They left nothing behind, 
And, you know, my 27 years of being a, an athlete taught me one thing. Leave it all on the field. You can always get it back so you can leave it all on the field the next time, too. You know, I, I, I really I am proud that I was on this panel tonight because I believe everybody came with a game and they did not they did not misrepresent. They certainly played their hearts out. This is the way it should be. Life is a sport. No matter whether we want to call it anything else, life is a sport. We have to teach these kids that when they're inside the lines, which in life is everywhere, they're going to be treated fairly. And you cannot have an environment where there is de facto segregation and use the word fair in the same sentence unless you're showing it as an opposite. Oh, you know that was good. Who's next? Who's next? Miss Jerry, I'll go next. I think what was uh, important from what uh, Dr. Daniels just said is that we think that parent involvement is all the same and it looks the same. Parent involvement might be that my mom only could get little Jerry to the front of the school, you know, because it's so hard for me to get up, get out the house because I'm dealing with so many other things within the house that that's her parent involvement, not her being able to come to the PTA and other events. Also, we have to look at the holistic approach uh, of a student, meaning that if a student has come to school and they're lethargic, sleepy, and things like that, you got to ask, are you sleeping at home? What's going on? If the student then is coming in and they hyped up, you know, are you eating sugary cereal in the morning to get your blood sugar high? And then after recess, your blood sugar drops. So now you're lethargic, put your head down. You know, we just got to ask the whole list of questions because every student is coming in because of either mom or daddy just set them there, intrinsic, or they're motivated to change their environment. But it's up to the staff, along with the community, along with the household, to produce the best students. Mm, that's good. That's good. Who's next? Here I'll go. As long as words like discrimination, affirmative action, as long as these type words garnish more credibility and more power in a political camp political campaign than it does as a social issue that get resolved, then we're we don't stand a chance on fixing these things. Because we put value in where things are the most credible, where things bring the most bang for the buck. And as long as politicians can talk about these things and get people to vote because they're talking about them, not looking at what they're doing and see that they're not doing anything about it, it just becomes a buzzword. And we have to take the buzz at the word and actually do something about it. Oh, that was good. Because, you know, we're going to be we're going to be battling with that. We go in the future. We're going to be battling with that. Oh, that was so good. Let me shut up. Dr. Daniels, take us home, please. Well, you know what? These guys just, they just did such a great mic drop moment, all of them. You know, it's really hard for me to follow it up. And I know that, you know, I was asked to be last, but I just don't know how I could say it any better. But, you know, I, I agree. I mean, this needs to be a much longer and extensive dialogue uh, because the reality is there's just so many you know, issues that go into equity and I'm sorry, so many aspects of equity and what really should happen. But, you know, you find against the culture that don't want to see a system that doesn't want to see equity. 
And we have to understand that and not necessarily get, not get frustrated by it, but just come to the table with solutions. Um, you know, we've got to educate parents. We've got to get kids more actively <clears throat> involved and supportive of their education at an earlier age. And we can't just say it. We've got to do it and keep a plan in place for them all throughout, you know, their education. Otherwise, we're spending a lot of resources to try to get, get those kids caught up later on in life. And, you know, I've seen this happen time and time again uh, with young black and brown students. Um, and so to me, it, it starts early with them, and, you know, and, and ensuring that we have equitable access to education and support for those kids and, um, you know, ensuring that they, you know, are allowed or given opportunities to, to have agency and, and build ownership for their education. And that's really what I stand for when it comes to education. Listen, God bless America. This was another impactful night on Impact Education Leadership, this episode 185. Our guest tonight was Dr. Larry Davis, Carl Berry, Buddy Thornton, Apostle, Change Station Pro, Jerry Green, and Dr. William D. Daniels. Good night. Impact of Educational Leadership Podcast. Facebook.